One of the things I want to cover are a list of biblical reasons for why we do not believe Jesus is the Almighty God. I'll give you about 21 of these, though this list is by no means exhaustive. You could come up with other reasons, especially some more technical ones. The main things I'm going to discuss in this list are areas where there are clear distinctions between Jesus, the Son of God, and God, his Father. I'm not going to give a lot of detail in each of these points because we've talked about this in detail before in some of the other classes we've had on this subject. This is more of an overview of some of the key, most forceful reasons why there is a distinction between the Father and the Son, between God and between Christ. So again, I'm not going to give a lot of references. I won't necessarily quote every single scripture. I won't give you an exhaustive amount of explanation for each of these points, because most of them speak for themselves, and as I said, most of them are things we've talked about in detail already. Before I get into this, though, I want to point out that many theologians will often make the case that a number of the contrasts that I'm going to mention that exist between God and Christ are only due to their concept of Jesus' temporary human existence that during the time Jesus was in a human form, there were some differences between him and God because of his human limitations. But if you do a thorough study of the points I'm going to give you, you'll see that many of the contrasts between God and his son Jesus remain unchanged even after Jesus' resurrection and his return to heaven. Though there are some contrasts in this list that were changed to one degree or another after the glorification of Christ by God after his resurrection. There's a number of contrasts between God and Christ that I'm not going to address in this list of 21 because some of them are due to that very fact that they were the product of Christ being in a human existence. For example, I've heard people argue that one difference between them is that Christ required sleep, which you see in Matthew 8, 24, but that God never sleeps, which is stated in Psalm 121 for. Well, that's true, but I doubt that Christ requires sleep now in his celestial form that he's existing in, so that would only be true of his existence when he was in a human existence. Another example might be Christ's lack of omniscience, which you see in Mark 5, 30-32 and 13:32, versus the fact that God is clearly omniscient. Well, that's true in Christ's human state, but it does appear as if now at least he is given a level of omniscience, especially in the description that's given of him in Revelation 5 regarding him being a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns that would be like God's omniscience and omnipotence. There's another contrast that I sometimes hear people make between God and Christ I didn't include in this list, and that is that Christ is a man and God is not a man. Obviously, God is not a man. Numbers 23, 19 and 1 Samuel 15, 29, Hosea 11, 9 and other passages talk about how God is not a man. I think that goes without saying. But the reason I didn't include it in this list is because it's a bit of an oversimplification. God is certainly not a man, but Christ was not a man in the sense of a human man in his pre-existent celestial state, and I don't think we could say that he's just a man in the sense of being human in his present state. In his present glorified state, he might still be referred to as a man. One example, that might be 1 Timothy 2.5, but he's far more than just a human man. So I think that's a little bit too much of an oversimplification for me to use that in one of these points. There are overlaps between several of these points, but I haven't combined them together because looking at them separately allows you to see the full spectrum on this subject. The first of these distinctions between God and Jesus is that God is without origin and he is uncreated. But Jesus had an origin and Jesus was created. 
Now, again, I'm not going to give a whole lot of scriptures and a whole lot of arguments for this point because we've talked about this in previous classes. As I said, this is more of an overview. So I'll just give a few scriptures, a few points on each of these. As to God being without an origin, God is not only an eternal being, but he is a being who has always been eternal. He has no point of origin. Psalms 90, 1 to 2 says, From everlasting to everlasting thou art God. Isaiah 57, 15, Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. God has always existed in an eternal state. This is one of the things, as we talked about in some of the classes on this subject, that caused people some confusion, though, because they assume that only God could be referred to as eternal. There's a difference between being eternal in your present condition and having always been eternal and being eternal in your present condition and having been created at some point in time. Righteous human beings are going to exist in an eternal state at some point, but that doesn't mean they weren't created at some point in time or that they were always eternal. And we shouldn't confuse Jesus' descriptions of being in an eternal state with being the same kind of condition as what God's eternality was, because Jesus was brought into an existence in an eternal state. He didn't always exist in an eternal state. That would be true of the angels as well. They're eternal creatures, but they didn't always exist. Jesus is an eternal being, just like the celestial angels and just like the resurrected believers will be, who was created in what we might call eternity past. Now, I realize that for those who study the nature of time and space, eternity past is a bit of a misleading term, but I'm using that term to just refer to the fact that he was in a state of eternal existence that was in the past prior to his human existence, and now he's in an eternal state of existence once again. Colossians 1, 15-17 calls Jesus the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Revelation 3.14 refers to him as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. God has no beginning, but Jesus was the beginning of God's creating, meaning he was the first thing that God created. In Colossians 1.15, as we just read, refers him as the firstborn of every creature, meaning he has to have been a creature, but he was the very first of every creature, created in an eternal state in eternity past. The second of the distinctions in this list between God and Christ is that God is the Father and never the Son, and Jesus is the Son and he's never God the Father. God can never be a Son. There is no title God the Son in the Bible, despite the fact that Trinitarian believers and oneness believers to some extent would like to create that title. It exists nowhere, and it's a very paganized idea that God could have the title God the Son. A son is always the product of the one who preceded him and produced him. The Almighty God has no parent that produced him. He has no being that ever preceded him, but Jesus does. Jesus has a parent who is God his Father. That parent, and by that I mean the one who brought him into existence, produced him, created him, and preceded him in time. The Father is not just one person who makes up a triune Godhead. He is the only Almighty God. The titles God and Father are used synonymously in the Bible for the very same being and person, not as one subset or one person that's part of some greater being. 
1 Corinthians 8, 6 tells us there is but one God the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and there is one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Seven chapters later in 1 Corinthians, in the 15th chapter, from the 24th to the 28th verse, it says, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. Notice that God is the Father. It goes on to say, When all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him to put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Which means the Son cannot be God if he's going to be subject to God so that God can be all in all. Jesus, the Son of God, can never be God who is his own Father. Jesus is the product of the Almighty God who is the Father, and Jesus was preceded in existence by God his Father. Jesus can be a spiritual father, but he can never be God the Father, capital F. Jesus is only a father of the believers in the sense that God his Father has given his children into Christ's care. Hebrews 2, 12-13 says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. This is Jesus talking. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee, and again I will put my trust in him, speaking of God. And again, behold I, Jesus, and the children which God hath given me. That's part of the possible meaning of the title Everlasting Father or Father of the Age to Come that Jesus has given in Isaiah 9.6. Not that he is the Father, but that he was given that role in regard to God's children. God has given his own spirit-born and spirit-filled children into the keeping of Jesus his Son, who acts as a spiritual surrogate father on God the Father's behalf. Again, Jesus is the Son of God, not God himself. Luke one thirty two calls him the Son of the Highest. Mark 5.7 calls him the Son of the Most High God. Mark 14.61 calls him the Son of the Blessed. And John 6.69 calls him the Son of the Living God. Every one of those titles differentiates him not only from the Father in some kind of a Trinitarian conception, but from God himself. Trinitarian theologians will say Jesus is the Son of the Father, but that they're both the same God. But notice that all the preceding titles that are referring to sonship differentiate Jesus not just from the Father, but from God, which means that he's not just God the Son, and there's another person who's God the Father. He is the Son of the being and person who is God. Another distinction between God and Christ is that God is the actual being upon which the image is based that Christ is referred to as. Jesus is referred to as the image of God. He's the image, the reflection of God, which all by itself tells you he is not the actual being upon whom that image is based. 2 Corinthians 4, 4-6 refers to Christ as the image of God. Colossians 1.15 calls him the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Hebrews 1.1-3 says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The image of God is by definition distinct from the actual God the image is based on. Jesus is the perfect reflection of God. He's not the actual God who casts that reflection. New covenant believers are themselves intended to be remade into the image of God. 
which proves that being in the image of God does not make the person who's in that image synonymous with God himself. Romans 8, 29-30 said he also did predestinate them, the believers, to be conformed to the image of his Son. Colossians 3, 9-10 talks about the believers as being renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created them. 1 Corinthians 15, 47-49 talks about how the first man is of the earth and earthy, but the second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy, and as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And we that have borne the image of the earthly shall also bear the image of the heavenly. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So believers are intended to be image bearers of God just as Jesus is an image bearer of God, which proves that being said to be the image of God or in the image of God certainly does not make somebody synonymous with God. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, but they were not synonymous with God. The image of God is something that is separate from the God who that image is based on. Another of the distinctions between God and Christ is that God has no God that's equal to him or above him in any way whatsoever. But Jesus does have a God. The Almighty God is the highest God. There is no other God equal to him, and there's no other God above him. Exodus 15.11 says, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Deuteronomy 4.35 says, The Lord, he is God, and there is none else beside him. 1 Kings 8.23 says, There is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath. Psalms 82.1 says that God standeth in the congregation of the mighty and judgeth among the gods. Psalms 86.8 says, Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord. Psalms 89.6-8 says, Who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? goes on to say, O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee? Isaiah 45.5-6 says, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. In the end of the sixth verse, it says, I am the Lord and there is none else. Now, what God means that there is none else is not that there is no other being who has divine characteristics, or there's no other being that might be supernatural or celestial in their existence in such a way people would think of them as like a God, but that there is no other God like him, no other being that could be called a God who would be on his level or who could be his equal. Jesus, on the other hand, is ascribed in the Bible as having a God. Micah 5, 2-4 says, Thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. In the fourth verse, it goes on talking about the same person to say that he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. This is undoubtedly a reference to Christ. And notice that the Lord is Christ's God. In Matthew 27, 46, in some of his last statements on the cross, Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He clearly has a God. And again, God does not and cannot have a God. John 20, 17, when Jesus was talking to Mary, he said, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Meaning he has a God just like they have a God, and it's the same God. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God, meaning he has a head over him who is his God. 
Four chapters later in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, says the Son also himself will be subject unto him to put all things under him, that God may be all in all. His God that he will be subject to. Ephesians 1, 17 refers to God as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 9, that's quoting Psalm 45, 7, says, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. That means that God is Jesus' God. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is not just Jesus' Father, he's Jesus' God. And finally, Revelation 3.12 says, To him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Four different times in that one verse, Jesus referred to God as his God. The Almighty God can have no God. He can refer to no one as his God. But his Son, who is subordinate to him in existence and in position, sees his Father as his God. Another of the distinctions between God the Father and his Son is that God the Father has and will always have authority over Jesus his Son. During his earthly existence, Jesus made it very clear he was in a lower position of authority than God. In Matthew 20, 23, he told the disciples that the position of sitting on his right hand or on his left hand was not his to give, but would be given to them for whom it was prepared of his Father. Now, someone might say, well, this is just because he was in his human existence. You do realize that when the decision was made as to who was going to sit on his right or left hand, that would have either occurred in heaven prior to or after he had returned to heaven, meaning he wouldn't have been in his human existence at the time that decision was made. He would have been in a celestial existence. But even in that celestial existence, Jesus was not the one making that particular decision. A higher authority than himself was making that choice. John 14, 28, he tells the disciples that my father is greater than I. Now again, someone might argue that's just during his earthly existence. But that's not just the case during his earthly existence, as we'll see. After his earthly existence and his return back to heaven, Jesus is still referred to as lower and will always be lower in position of authority than God. 1 Corinthians 3, 23 says, you are Christ and Christ is God's. 1 Corinthians was written decades after Jesus returned back to the Father. Eight chapters later, in 1 Corinthians 11.3, he said, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Paul just doesn't say the head of Christ was God back when Jesus was in his human form some 20, 30 years before he wrote this letter. He says the head of Christ is, present tense, God. God was still the head of Christ. And notice it doesn't just say the Father is the head of the Son, but they're both God. Not at all. It says God is the head of Christ. So there is a distinction between God and Christ, and God is in a higher place than Christ. Another passage I just quoted a few minutes ago in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, at the end of that passage, after describing the process through which Christ is going to establish the kingdom during the millennial reign, which hasn't even occurred yet, it says at the end in the 28th verse, when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Again, this is a distinction not between God the Father and God the Son, and one being higher than the other. This is a distinction between God and his Son. 
God being higher than his son Jesus. Not only higher in the past or higher in his human period of existence, but higher even after he has brought every nation and power back under subjection to his father at the end of the millennial reign, he himself will still be subject unto God. Another distinction between Jesus and his father is that God inherently has all power, but Jesus was given his power. There's a number of passages that talk about how God's power is inherent to him. By that, I just mean it's part of who he is as God. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6 says, In thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee. Isaiah 14, 27 says, For the Lord of hosts hath purpose, and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? Isaiah 43, 13 says, There is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? Let there means to prevent. So who shall prevent it? Jeremiah 32, 27 says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And Matthew 19, 26 says, With God all things are possible. On the other hand, Jesus' power wasn't inherent to him. His power was given to him. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and spake unto them and said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. God didn't give himself all power. God always has had all power, which simply proves Jesus is not God. He is the Son of God. John 3, 34-35 says, God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. Talking about Jesus. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. John 13, 3 says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Again, he didn't have them inherently. He was given them. And Colossians 1, 19 said, It pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, should all fullness dwell. It was God's desire to give Jesus that power. It wasn't something that Jesus had in and of himself that didn't come from another outside source. It came from the source that was God his Father. Jesus was given his life and his life-giving power from God his Father. John 5.26 says that the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. John 17.2 says, Thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Notice, God has given Jesus this power, he's given him the ability to give eternal life, and he's even given people into his keeping that he intends to give eternal life. The very fact that God the Father gave this power to his Son clearly infers that the Son did not have it prior to his Father giving it to him. Another of these distinctions between God and Christ is that God has always been in the highest position of all, but Jesus was raised up to his great position. God has never been and never will be less than the highest. Genesis 14, 18 to 20 calls him the most high God. Psalms 57, 2 calls him God most high. Psalms 83, 18 says he is the most high over all the earth. Psalms 97, 9 says he's high above all the earth and exalted far above all gods. And Psalms 113, 4 says the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. If Jesus was the Almighty God, there was no room for any greater promotion, as he was already in the very highest possible position in the universe. But as the Son of the Almighty God, Jesus could be raised up and promoted to a position of preeminence above every other creature by God his Father. 
Acts 2, 32-36 says, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord, Son unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. The Lord God was always Lord. He could never have been made Lord. But the Lord God made his Son Lord and Christ. Acts 5.31 says that God exalted him with his right hand to be a prince and a savior. Ephesians 1, 20-23 says that he set him down at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that's named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And he's put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Those are things God gave Jesus, not something that Jesus had inherently in and of himself. Philippians 2, 9-11 says, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was exalted and given his name by God his Father. God could not exalt himself any higher than he already was, and he could not give himself a name any higher than his own. Colossians 1, 17-19 said he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. God has always had the preeminence, but he gave his Son a preeminent place. Hebrews 1, 9 says, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. God could never be anointed to a higher position than he had to begin with, but he could anoint his son to a higher position. Revelation 3.21 says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Meaning they each have two different thrones, and God raised him up to the level of authority that is being described as sitting with his father in his throne. Christ is described as God's heir. He's the one that God intended to give a special place of honor and inheritance to. Going back to Hebrews 1, the first through the fifth verses, says that God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he asked by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Luke twenty-two twenty-nine says, I appoint unto you a kingdom as my father hath appointed unto me. So again, there are numerous examples of how God has appointed and given this position to his son. But God could not give himself any higher position than he held to begin with. God is already, has always been, and will always be the owner of all things, the ruler of all things, and the one who owns all things. Jesus was made the heir of all things. He's not the one who is passing the inheritance to himself, but the heir who is receiving it from the God who is his father. 
Another of the distinctions between God and Christ is that God requires no instruction or direction. And who could give him instruction or direction? But Jesus is dependent on God for instruction and direction. There's certainly no creature in the universe that's capable of directing or instructing God. In fact, Job 21.22 says, Shall any teach God knowledge? Isaiah 40.13-14 says, Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Of course, no one can. Romans 11.33-34 refers to the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, and how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, who hath been his counselor? Referring back to Isaiah 40, 13 to 14. Of course, no one can instruct or direct God. But throughout his ministry, Jesus reiterated again and again that he was entirely dependent on God his Father's direction and instruction. In John 5, 19 to 20, he said, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For whatsoever things he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. About 10 verses later in John 5.30, he says, I can of mine own self do nothing as I hear I judge. In John 8.26-28, he says, I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. Remember, nobody can teach God, but Jesus was taught. John 12, 49-50, Jesus says, I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, He gave me a commandment which I should say and what I should speak. And I know that His commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. And two chapters later in John 14, 24, he says, The word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. If Jesus was the Almighty God, then all of those preceding statements would be senseless. All the direction that Jesus took was due to the design that his Father gave to him in terms of what he wanted from his Son. He was receiving that direction and instruction from someone other than himself. And thus, he was not the God who was giving that direction and instruction to him. Another distinction between them is that God is the servant of no higher being, but Jesus is consistently referred to as the obedient servant of God. The Almighty God is the highest being that exists in all the universe, and there is no being that he could possibly be called a servant of. But as I said, Jesus is consistently referred to with that exact type of title. Isaiah 49, 3-6 says, Thou art my servant, O Israel. And Israel here is the type of Christ, as you'll see, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for naught, and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord, and my work with my God. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Those last statements alone tell you this isn't just talking about the nation of Israel, 
The nation of Israel isn't going to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore themselves. This is talking about Jesus, who would be the one who would raise up the tribes of Jacob, restore Israel, and be a light to the Gentiles. And he's being called the servant of God. Isaiah 52, 13 refers to Jesus as my servant that shall deal prudently. John 14, 31, Jesus says that the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. That's the work of a servant, serving one who is higher than themselves. John 15, 10, he says, I've kept my Father's commandments. John 17, 4, he said, I've finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Hebrews 3, first and second verse, he says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. Jesus is the perfect and most obedient servant of the Almighty God. He's self-sacrificial in his service, and he's never self-serving. If Jesus were the Almighty God, he could literally be said to be self-serving. Because if he is the Almighty God, whatever service he's doing is serving himself. If he's the servant of God, but Jesus is not serving himself. He is serving one higher than himself, who is God his Father. One of the most obvious distinctions between God and Christ is that both God and Jesus have separate wills. Though God and Jesus are one in terms of their purpose and their actions, that is not because they're one single being who shares one single will. They each have their own wills as separate entities, but the will of the Son is perfectly subject to the will of God his Father. I'll just give you two verses that simply demonstrate this. Matthew 26, 39, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, says that he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. That by itself proves there were two different wills being involved the will of Jesus, and the will of God. And Jesus submitted his will, distinct to himself, to the will of God, distinct to God. John 5.30 says, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which sent me. If Jesus was God, he had to have been seeking his own will if he was seeking the will of the Father that sent him. But he wasn't. He was seeking the will of the Father because he was the Son who was distinct from the Father, who submitted his will to the will of God his Father. Another distinction between God and Christ is that Jesus is referred to as a brother to the believers, but God is never a brother and only a father to the believers. The reason for this is that Jesus shares a measure of his familial status as the Son of God with New Covenant believers who are the born-again sons and daughters of God. They are his spiritual brothers and sisters in some sense. Romans 8.29 refers to Jesus as the firstborn among many brethren. That lets you know that he will have brothers and sisters. Hebrews 2.10-11 For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That means Jesus isn't ashamed to call us his brothers. But God has no brothers or sisters. God only has sons and daughters. Another distinction between them is that Jesus prayed to God, but God prays to no one. Who would he pray to? Jesus prayed to God his Father many times during his earthly existence. 
Matthew 26, 39, that I referred to in just the last few minutes in the Garden of Gethsemane as his prayer to God when he fell on his face and prayed to God his Father. John eleven forty one, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. That'd be a very odd thing to say if Jesus was God in the oneness sense, because that would mean he'd have to be talking to himself and thanking himself for hearing himself. John twelve twenty eight, Jesus says, Father, glorify thy name. Then there came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. If Jesus is God, who responded to him when he made this statement? Who spoke out of heaven? The entire 17th chapter of John is a prayer of Jesus to God his Father. And the Trinitarian argument that this is just the Son that is God in their conception, praying to the Father that is God, is not only nonsensical, but the very first words of that prayer completely destroy that claim. The first three verses say, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now, the Trinitarians can get away with the first verse because he's praying to the Father. So they'll just say it's God the Son praying to God the Father. But do you realize the Son, in the very same prayer, in what amounts to the next sentence or two, refers to the one he's praying to as the only true God, and then separates himself from the only true God when he says the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou, who has to be the only true God, hast sent. So in these examples, if Jesus is God, who was he praying to? And why would God need to pray to anyone if he was God? God doesn't pray to anyone, but the Son of God clearly does pray to God his Father. Another of the distinction between God and Christ is that Jesus is the high priest of God, but God certainly is not his own high priest. Jesus fills the role of high priest in the sense that he intercedes and interacts with God on behalf of mankind. Hebrews 2.17 refers to him as a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Hebrews 3.1 refers to him as the apostle and high priest of our profession. Hebrews 4.14 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed in the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. And Hebrews 5.4-5 says, Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. If Jesus was God, he would have had to have been the one who glorified himself to be a high priest, wouldn't he? Because he would have had to have made himself high priest, but that is exactly the opposite of what the Bible describes. These passages indisputably state that Jesus did not make himself high priest, but that God appointed him to that office. And obviously, Jesus is not the God who appointed himself to that office. God is not his own high priest. A priest is someone who performs sacrifices and religious rites and an intermediary service between the people and God. God's not offering himself sacrifices. He's not offering himself offerings. He's not mediating with himself on behalf of others. God's son is God's high priest. And that makes a clear distinction between the God who the high priest is serving and the high priest who is serving that God. Another distinction between them is that Jesus is called an apostle and prophet of God. And clearly God is not his own apostle and prophet. Hebrews 3.1 that I just referred to a few moments ago refers to Jesus as the apostle and high priest of our profession. An apostle is one who's been sent as an emissary or an agent of another who's higher in authority and power than themselves. 
And that is true of Christ. God, who is his father, sent him as his emissary, his agent, his apostle. God's not his own apostle. Jesus, his son, is his highest apostle, his highest agent. Christ is also referred to as a prophet. In Luke 7:16, he's called a great prophet that's risen up among us. In Luke 24, 19, they said unto him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. In John 4, 19, the woman at the well says, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Jesus doesn't contradict any of these statements, you realize. In fact, he's going to support them. John 6, 14 says, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. John 7, 40, many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said of a truth, this is the prophet. In John 9, 17, when they said unto the blind man, what sayest thou of him that he hath opened thine eyes? He said, he is a prophet. A prophet of God is one who speaks on behalf of God, not the one who's the God he's speaking on behalf of. God is not his own prophet. But Jesus, the Son of God, is God's prophet. Again, two offices which are entirely distinct from one another. The God who has a prophet and the prophet who is the prophet of that God. Another distinction between God and Christ is that Jesus is the mediator between God and mankind, but God is certainly not the mediator between himself and mankind. 1 John 2.1 says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Hebrews 7.25 says that he's able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He's making intercession for them with God. A mediator, an advocate, someone that's making intercession is completely unnecessary if there are just two parties interacting directly with one another. A mediator or advocate is a third party in between two other parties that is resolving the issues between those parties that might require reconciliation. Jesus is that intercessor, that mediator, that advocate. Not God advocating between man and himself, but a separate individual being who is his son that is advocating between him and mankind. If Christ is God, who is he interceding with? He's interceding for mankind. But if Christ is God, who would he possibly be interceding with? It would be nonsensical to say he's interceding with himself. God is not both his own mediator and mankind's mediator. God has provided his son Jesus as a separate individual entity from himself to act as a mediator between himself and mankind. Another of the distinctions between God and Christ is that God never is ascribed as needing, nor would he ever need, any aid or assistance. But Jesus did need aid and assistance from God his Father. God is certainly far beyond the need for any natural or even supernatural assistance. That ought to be obvious, but I'll give you at least one verse describing this. In Isaiah 40, 28-29, it says, Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, feigneth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. But Jesus clearly required outside supernatural assistance during his earthly existence. Matthew 4.11, when the devil left him, it says that angels came and ministered unto him. God doesn't need any angels to minister unto him. Luke 22.43 says there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Do you think God needs an angel to strengthen him? Of course he doesn't. 
Psalms 91, 11-12 is the prophecy that he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. You realize what that would have to be saying if Jesus was God? That he would give his angels charge over himself to keep him in all of his own ways? That they would protect him, you know, and bear him up, keep him from hurting himself? That's not what the case is at all. He was giving his angels charge over his son when his son was in his human state. Matthew 26, 53, Jesus says, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? It's obvious that those legions of angels were being authorized to come by God his Father. As I said just a minute ago, if Jesus were truly God, why would he need the ministration of angels to strengthen and protect him? Even if God chose to take on a human form, would his health and his well-being be at the mercy of angels or of some other supernatural being to provide for him? Of course not. But Jesus, his son, did need his father to provide for him. One of the most significant differences between God and Christ, and very important theologically, is that God cannot be tempted, but Jesus could be and was tempted. The Bible definitively states God, not God the Father, by the way, versus God the Son, but God cannot be tempted with evil. James 1.13 says, Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But Jesus was tempted with evil. In Luke 4.2, it says he was tempted of the devil. In Luke 22.28, he refers to his disciples as those that have continued with him in his temptations. In Hebrews 2.18, it refers to him having suffered being tempted, and thus he's able to succor them that are tempted. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The word that's translated tempted in James 1.13 that I said in the beginning in the statement that God cannot be tempted is the Greek word eparastos. It's the adjective form of the Greek verbs parazo and pereo, both of which are words that are used to refer to Jesus being tempted. So there is no way around the fact that the very temptation that it said God cannot be tempted with is the kind of temptation Jesus was tempted with. Jesus was tempted, but God can never be tempted, regardless of what form he might choose to take on, by the way. If God could be tempted in any measure, he could not truly be God. Another one of the most significant theological differences between Jesus and God is that God cannot die, but Jesus could and did die. God is not only an eternal being in the sense that he exists within eternity, he's an immortal being as well. And that means he's not only outside of time, he's incapable of death. Deuteronomy 32.40 refers to God as the one that lives forever. Was God correct when he claimed that he lived forever, or did he actually die at some point and then return to life? To say that you live forever means that you are never going to die from that point on. And that statement was made more than 1,400 years before Jesus' death. 1 Timothy 1.17 refers to God as the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. 1 Timothy 6.16 refers to God as the one who only hath immortality. Immortality there is the Greek word athanasia, which means deathlessness. The word literally refers to the idea that this is the inability to die. The only other place in the Bible where that word is found in that form is in 1 Corinthians 15, 
In the passage, it talks about the believers resurrecting. And when it says that corruptible must put on incorruption and that mortal must put on immortality, that immortality that individuals are going to put on in that resurrection is a state of deathlessness, wherein they will never die. Death will literally, in the 54th verse, be swallowed up in victory. If God truly had immortality, could he die? No, he couldn't die. And if God put off his immortality in order to die, then we have another question we need to ask, which would be, did he truly and fully die if he died? You realize that a sacrifice for sin had to truly and fully die, completely die. Some part of the sacrifice couldn't still be alive somewhere, but just unconscious or comatose or in some kind of state that wasn't entirely and completely dead, or the sacrifice would not be a sacrifice that could be said to have died for sin. But Jesus died as a sacrifice for the sin of mankind. Philippians 2.8 says that he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 1 Peter 3.18 talks about how Christ suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And if that isn't strong enough, Isaiah 53 is very clear in describing not only that Jesus died, but he poured out his soul unto death. Isaiah 53, 10-12 said, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus obviously had to fully die in order to be a true sacrifice for sin, and it wasn't just his body that was the sacrifice for sin. But Isaiah 53 clearly tells us it was his soul that was made an offering for sin. A sacrifice for sin had to completely die. Jesus' soul was made a sacrifice for sin. Thus, Jesus had to be entirely dead at the soul level when he was made a sacrifice for sin. There isn't any greater level of death than death at the soul level. And there is no life left to be resuscitated if the soul dies. Only God can restore a soul that dies back to life. If Jesus is the Almighty God, then when Jesus poured out his soul unto death, the Almighty God had to have died entirely. Surely, Trinitarian or Oneness theologians are not going to try to argue that God's soul can be truly dead while he himself is alive in some sense. If they try to make the argument that there was a person with a human soul that died while another person with a divine soul remained alive, but that both persons were the same one singular almighty God, that is far beyond the case of a split personality. If you have two individuals with two different souls, surely that means that they would have to be two different beings. And if Jesus died at the soul level and Jesus was the almighty God, then as I said, the almighty God had to have been fully and entirely dead. And if the Almighty God was fully and entirely dead at some point, you wouldn't be here to hear this class and I wouldn't be here to teach it because it is the spirit and breath of the Almighty God that is sustaining the creation right now. If he died in some entire sense, the creation would go out of existence. If the being, who we believe to be the Son of God and not the Almighty God, his own Father, who died soul and body on the cross, did not truly and fully die, then his sacrifice wouldn't be efficacious for the forgiveness of sin. 
which is a simple proof that Jesus, who did fully die, body and soul on the cross, cannot possibly be the Almighty God. Another of the distinctions between Jesus and God is that God is invisible and not fully seen by men. In fact, in some passages, it seems to infer he has never been truly and fully seen by men, but Jesus was visible and he has been fully seen by men. God is consistently described in the Bible as being unseen or at the very most seen in some kind of an indirect way. John 1.18 says that no man has seen God at any time. By the way, that doesn't just say no man has seen God the Father, but they did see God the Son in some kind of a convoluted Trinitarian theological idea. This says no man has seen God. John 5.37 says that you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape. If Jesus was God, they were hearing his voice right when he was saying that. 1 Timothy 6.16, that I've referred to just here lately, refers to God as the one who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see. Colossians 1.15 refers to him as the invisible God. And Hebrews 11.27 refers to him as him who is invisible. 1 John 4.12 also says, no man has seen God at any time. Once again, if Jesus is not just the Son of God, but actually God the Son, which is a title which is nowhere used in the Bible, by the way, then a lot of people saw God. They saw God the Son. But Jesus is not God the Son. Jesus is the Son of God. The passages I just gave you don't just say that the Father or the Spirit hasn't been seen. They say that God himself has not been seen. All those passages were written long after Jesus had risen from the grave, by the way, and had been seen by many and had returned to heaven. So even if it might be argued that the passages in John were statements during the period that was prior to Jesus' resurrection, more than half of the statements I just gave you, the statement in 1 Timothy 6, Colossians 1, Hebrews 11, and 1 John 4, were not talking about Jesus during his human lifetime, but were talking about him after he had returned back to God the Father. If Jesus was truly the Almighty God, it would be entirely meaningless to say that no man has seen the Almighty God, because everyone who saw Jesus had seen him. Again, it can't be argued that no one has seen God the Father or God the Spirit, though they did see God the Son, because the passages I gave you are very clear in stating no man has seen God. Many people saw Jesus not only in his pre-resurrection human period of life, but also in his post-resurrection glorified state, and apparently they did not see God when they saw Jesus. So if someone could say, which Paul and John both do, that no man had seen the Almighty God decades after the time of Christ, Christ could not have been the Almighty God. And that ties right into the passage when Jesus says, He that has seen me has seen the Father. That type of statement obviously doesn't mean that they were seeing the Father literally but that they were seeing God in him. He was an indirect expression of God. Indirect in the sense that he wasn't God, but still a perfect reflection of God in terms of his character and disposition. Another of the differences between Jesus and God is that Jesus grew and developed, but God certainly requires no growth or development. God is as fully developed as any being can be, and he certainly doesn't need to grow or develop in any of his knowledge, wisdom, or understanding. But Jesus is described as growing and developing in those very things. Luke 2.40 says that he grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. 
Luke 2.52 says that he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Does that mean he grew in favor with himself? Of course not. He's not God his own father. He grew in favor with God his father. Hebrews 5.8 says that though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. God can't learn obedience because there's nobody that God could be obedient to. But the Son of God can learn obedience by learning to be obedient to God his Father. The final one of this list that I'll give you is an important theological point as well. God has never been less than fully perfect, but Jesus was made fully perfect. Deuteronomy 32.4 says about God that he is the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Matthew 5.48, Jesus told them to be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. That's present tense. God the Father in heaven was presently perfect when Jesus was saying that. Mark 10.18, Jesus said, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. Notice that Jesus didn't say, Right now I'm just the Son and I'm in a human form, but the Father is good. He didn't say, I'm God the Son, but God the Son right now isn't perfect. It's just God the Father. He said that there is none good but the one that is God. Jesus, even though he was already perfect in terms of his obedience to his Father's will, had to be made fully perfect. That just means he had to come to a place where he was beyond the possibility of imperfection. I'll give you two statements in Hebrews that we'll close this session out with to prove that point. Hebrews 2.10 says it became him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That's God making Jesus perfect through the process that Jesus went through. Hebrews 5.8-9 says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him.